Good morning, everybody. Do you have your Bible this morning? Jason, you got yours? Well, kind of. <laughs> kind of, kind of. Get it in your pocket. Okay. All right. Ephesians chapter 6 is where we need to go. Studying in Ephesians. We've been studying for some time now. There's light at the end of the tunnel. We, we are almost finished. But man, there's good stuff right here at the end. Uh, as you're turning there, I want to read to you the first line of, the, of my notes. It says this, last week... We began our look at the armor of God, which we are called to take up and put on for this never-ending battle. And just before I came up here, I reviewed that, and it's wrong. It's just wrong. We, we don't take up this armor and put it on for a never-ending battle. The battle ends. There is an end to the battle. There is a day coming when there will be no more battle, when it will be clear the victory is the Lord's, and it will be clear that the victory is ours, and there will be no more fight, right? That's a good day, but we're not there yet. So as much as my first line is wrong, the application is the same. As far as we are concerned on this earth, in this life, the battle doesn't end. But we look forward to the day when it is completed and it is finished. So we don't have the luxury here and now in this life of putting on the armor and taking it off. We don't have time to relax in the midst of this battle. Our enemy is always on the attack. He is always seeking opportunity. Here are some things we need to remember from the last couple weeks. Number one, this is a real fight that we are in. It is a real fight. Life is not a playground. It is a battleground. So we must be alert. We must be awake. We must be sober. This is war. Secondly, it is a fight against a real and really powerful enemy. We don't need to overestimate Satan and his demons. We don't need to overestimate his influence on the world. But at the same time, we need to be very careful not to underestimate Satan and his demons and underestimate his influence uh, through people and through systems in the world. It is a real, he is a real and really powerful foe. Secondly, thirdly, actually, he, Satan, is stronger than we are. We are no match for him on our own. Jason spoke about that a minute ago, but the good news is this. The Lord is stronger than he is, right? He is no match for the Lord. And when we fight, we fight in and with the Lord's strength and in his armor that he supplies to us. And the victory, the victory is his, right? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the victory is his, and he gives it to us through Jesus Christ. So we fight from victory. We fight for victory with the strength and the armor of the Lord. Last week, we looked closely at the first three elements of armor. We talked about belt of truth, belt of the uh, most important doctrinal truths in scripture, the truth. But we also talked about how if we have the belt of those truths, we must also be truthful in our words, in our actions. So truth and truthfulness go hand in hand. Then we talked about the breastplate of righteousness. We talked about the imputed righteousness of Christ that is given to us by grace through faith that we are counted righteous. We talked about that. Laura read a little bit about Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was we are given the righteousness of Christ by faith, and when we are given righteousness, we will be righteous. There is an expectation that the righteousness of Christ, which is given to us by faith, will also be worked out in our lives in practical righteousness, in practical personal holiness. And then we talked about gospel shoes. We talked about how gospel shoes help us stand they help us stand firm against the advances of the enemy, but they also help us go. We are not given these gospel shoes just to stand firm. We are given these gospel shoes to take that message to the nations with gladness, with joy, with beautiful feet. You remember that whole talk about how the, the, uh, uh, the people, the watchmen, were able to look out at the messengers and they could tell just by the way they were moving whether they had good news or bad news. And we've got good news, right? 
And so we put on our gospel boots and we run with gladness and joy to the nations with this gospel truth. This week, we're going to look at three more pieces of armor. Um, remember, we've been called to take it all up and put it all on the full armor of God. Again, the historic uh, military usage of these elements is rich. So that's what we're going to talk about first. And then we're going to talk about the spiritual parallel that Paul is, is drawing. And then we'll talk about application of these three parts uh, of, of armor today. So check it out. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. We'll start in verse 10 and read through um, this whole section. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let's pray. God, we come before you today, and we are thankful that you have taught us about these things, that you have spoken to us about the reality of the battle, about the reality of our enemy, about the greatness of your strength, about the provision of your armor. Thank you that the victory is yours and you've shared it with us through Christ. Thank you that we fight not on our own, we fight in your strength. I thank you that you've opened our eyes to all of this from your word and I pray that you will continue to open our eyes to it in our lives that we will see this battle, that we will see the enemy. More than that, that we would see you and your strength, you and your victory, and that we would fight with strength and valor until the day you take us home and we fight no more. Until the day you take us home and the struggle is over and we enjoy your perfect peace, your glorious presence. We long for that day. And I ask today that you help us to keep one eye on that day as we fight on this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so three parts today, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Let's talk about this shield. Let's talk about its historical uh, military usage. There were a few different types of shield that would have been available to a Roman soldier in Paul's day. One of them was a small circular shield, kind of like um, Captain America has a shield like this. Have you seen Captain America's shield? He has it strapped to his forearm and he's able to move. Actually, he has it on this forearm because he's right-handed like most normal people, right? Um, He's got it on this forearm. He's got his sword in the other hand so he can move around. It's built for close hand-to-hand -hand combat. It's, it's somewhat an offensive weapon as much as it is a defensive weapon. That's one particular Greek word for shield. It's not the word that's used in this text, though. The word that's used in this text for shield is a much bigger shield. Uh, in fact, it comes from a Greek word that means door. It was a shield that would have been at least two feet wide. It would have been at least four feet tall. It looked like a door. 
and the soldier was able to hide his entire body behind that shield. He was able to crouch down and hide his entire body behind that shield as he uh, anticipated arrows and attacks from the enemy. He could shield his whole body with that shield. You get the picture? It was made of thick wood, and it would have been covered on the front with leather. Uh, and the leather would have been bound to the wood with some kind of metal, metal clasp, rivets, something like that. That's what it would have looked like. Um, so he is able to hide his whole body behind that shield. But the most interesting usage of that kind of shield is that oftentimes these soldiers would not advance forward behind that shield by themselves. They would get their buddies together and their buddies would come together and shield would link with shield. And they would be able to, in front and above, move forward, move forward completely protected by this shield and make an advance on an enemy that was shooting arrows at them, that was behind a fortified wall. They would be able to work. It was like, a, it was like an old school tank. You get the picture? This is good news for us, right? If we're talking about shield of faith, that should be a very vivid and rich picture. These guys together with their shields linked together in front of them and over their head, making an advance slowly on a fortified city where there were archers on the walls shooting arrows at them. Let's talk about those arrows that the enemy would have shot in the old days. Uh, sometimes they would shoot just normal arrows. If you, were, if you had an enemy that was attacking you, you would pull your bow back and you would shoot a normal arrow. And your desire, if you were shooting a normal arrow, was to make direct contact. It's useless unless you make a direct hit. It would be like a sniper, right? Uh, a normal arrow would be like sniper fire in today's warfare where you're trying to place that arrow. I'm going to shoot you, Joe, today. You be the guy, okay? You shoot Joe with that arrow, hoping uh, to destroy him. But... If there are a whole bunch of enemy coming at you, a lot of times in Paul's day, they would soak those arrows in some kind of flammable material or coat them with some kind of flammable material. Then, just before the archers launched them at the enemy, they would light them on fire, and so there would be this flaming missile that go, would go into the enemy territory, and then they weren't concerned about whether or not it hit someone, right? If you hit someone, hey, uh, that's a bonus. But if you get that fire into the midst of the enemy, it's going to catch everything it can on fire. The battleground itself, maybe the clothes of the enemy, it's going to cause a great deal of damage. So if, if I'm trying to kill Joe, I'm going to shoot a normal arrow at him. But if I'm looking at the whole youth group, I'm going to shoot a flaming arrow into the midst of it and hope to catch somebody on fire. You get the picture? Now, you don't want to know this just so that you can understand ancient military tactics, do you? No, that's not our goal today. But the more we understand those ancient military tactics, the more we can understand the rich spiritual parallel that Paul is drawing here for us. Because he says, we are to take up the shield of faith and with it, extinguish all the flaming arrows of the enemy. There is some rich spiritual truth for us to learn with this picture. So you get the picture? You got a bunch of, bunch of guys, shields linked together, moving forward, flaming arrows from the enemy coming at them. Oh, I didn't tell you this. A lot of times, just before they went into battle, the soldiers would soak their shields, these big shields, they would soak them in water so that when the flaming arrow hit their shield, it would stick in their shield, but it would have nothing that it could catch on fire, and it would eventually burn out and just fall to the ground. Dynamite picture, right? Okay, so that's what we're talking about as he says, this shield is faith. So the spiritual parallel is this. It is a shield of faith that we take up. So the first question we've got to answer is, what is faith? And this is important, and we need to spend some time here. We need to have a real good understanding of what the Bible means when it talks about faith. And what I want you to know, first off, is that when the Bible speaks of faith, it is not speaking of mere intellectual assent or agreement or understanding, okay? 
And I am even convinced that when the Bible speaks of faith, it is not merely referring to belief. It is belief and trust. It is faith and dependence. It, they work together. Does that make sense to you? Uh, I'll give you an illustration of this that I read uh, last week, actually. Uh, a man, a missionary, was in a foreign land, and he was trying to translate the Bible into the language of these people he was working with. But as he studied their language, he found out they didn't have a word for faith, and they didn't have a word for trust. And that makes it really difficult to translate the Bible, right? If you don't have a word for faith and you don't have a word for trust, there's a lot of the Bible you just can't translate. And so he was really struggling with this. And one day he was sitting in his tent and a local man came running into his tent. He had run from another city and he came running into this man's tent and he plopped himself down on this chair and he said, oh, it is so good for me to rest my entire weight on this chair. And the missionary said, that's it. That's the picture. That's how I'm going to translate the concept of faith and trust in the scripture. It is good for me to rest my entire weight on this chair. And that's what faith needs to look like for us. It's not just understanding. It's not just agreeing with. It's not just believing. It is resting our entire weight on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? There is much more to it than just saying, yes, that's true, that's true, I agree with that, I am a sinner, Jesus died for sins, he rose again, I believe all of this. No, it's more than just saying you agree with that. The demons agree with that kind of stuff, right? Belief and trust and faith as it is spoken of in the scripture is resting your entire weight on the Lord Jesus Christ. So have that picture in mind as we talk about faith. What is faith? It is resting your entire weight on the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is also this all-encompassing shield. I told you that, that the shield that the Roman soldier was using was not some small shield. It was a shield he could get his entire body behind, and that's the way faith works. You can hide your entire existence behind faith. You can rest confidently behind your faith, knowing that you are protected. Faith is also best used in community, just like that shield. Just like that shield is effective when it's out on its own. But you get 20 or 30 or 50 men together who have those shields, man, they can really advance on the enemy at that point. And you need to understand that although your faith is personal, although your faith is individual, it is your faith. God has always intended you to live out that faith in community. And it is best lived out in community. There's so many people that say, hey, listen, it's not about church. Church is not important. This thing is just me and Jesus. It is. It is you and Jesus. And if you read the New Testament, he always intended you and Jesus to dwell together in a community of other people who are living with Jesus. Does that make sense? So just like that shield is most effective in community, your faith is also most effective in community, especially when we're talking about guarding against the attacks of the enemy. Faith is all-encompassing. Faith is best used in community. Satan, he fires arrows, right? Lots of arrows. How many arrows do you think he's fired at you in your life? How many arrows do you think he's fired at you today? I can tell you about a couple this morning. Uh, I won't tell you about it, but he fired some arrows into my house this morning. And they weren't just arrows that were aimed at me. They were flaming, stinking arrows. I might give you some clue as to what what was going on at my house this morning. They were, they, he, his intention was to disrupt everything in that area, not just to come straight after me as an in, individual, but to attack my entire household, right? This happens, doesn't it? He doesn't just fire arrows, he fires flaming arrows. And there are all kinds of things in our lives that are flammable. There are all kinds of flammable materials around us. We sometimes seem like we're soaked in gasoline in the midst of this battle, right? 
because of our temptations and our weakness and our history and, and all of these things, it seems like we are soaked in gasoline and he's firing flaming arrows at us. So what do we need to do? We need to take up the shield of faith. We need to take up the shield of faith with our brothers and sisters and guard, guard against those flaming arrows. But notice the text doesn't just say you guard against them. Look what it says. It says, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. That's a better picture, isn't it? I don't want to just guard against them. I want to put them out. I want to put them out so that they don't harm anyone else. And God in his word says you take up the shield of faith, the shield of resting, depending, putting your entire weight on Jesus. Together, extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. So in the midst of this battle, we must learn to rest our whole weight on Jesus. In the midst of Satan's attacks, we get ourselves get ourselves into trouble when we try to bear our own weight, when we try to fight by ourselves, when we leave the shield of faith at home, when we take up the shield of faith all by ourselves, we must rest our entire weight on the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of this battle. So he talks about a shield of faith, then he talks about a helmet of salvation. Let's talk about the historical military usage of helmets. Well, it's no different than it is today. <laughs> a helmet is a helmet. Did any of you see Richard Myers this morning? Put it, I can't believe you took it off. Put it on. We're talking now. Matt Ford has one. Where's he at? Two guys came to church this morning with helmets. Put them on. Seriously, everybody's going to look at you if you don't. <laughs> little, little tip, everybody's going to look at you anyway. Look at this guy. He's got a helmet. A helmet in ancient days might not have been made out of plastic. Um, it probably would have been made out of some kind of metal. Um, but like Richard's helmet, it would have been adorned with decorations. It probably wouldn't have had a GoPro camera on it, although that would be cool. Um, it would have had some kind of decoration, some kind of personal uh, note about who this guy was, maybe some identification with the rest of his troops. Uh, helmet, what does it do? What's the purpose of the helmet? It protects your head, right? How important is your head in the midst of a battle? It's pretty important, right? You take a blow to the head and you might not be able to fight anymore. And so helmets in Paul's day are much like helmets in our day. Maybe one other thing that we need to talk about is, you remember when we talked about the belt, how maybe there's a, there's a psychological confidence that comes from the belt when you strap it on? Remember talking about that? That there's this sense of inner strength that comes when you strap on the, the belt? Maybe the same thing happens in an even greater way when you put the helmet on. I was reading one scholar talk about this, and he made reference to his six-year-old boy. He said, you put a helmet on my six-year-old boy, and he will take anybody on. He is, he is not afraid of anyone. And I think there is a good spiritual parallel here with the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation gives us confidence in the midst of the battle. We can take on some serious foes when we've got our helmet on. Don't have the helmet on, you better be afraid, right? But if you have the helmet on, you have great confidence. So let's talk about the spiritual parallels here. The helmet of salvation. It's interesting that Paul tells believers to put on the helmet of salvation, to take up the helmet of salvation. It is something that they already possess. And so there's a little bit of, of confusion there. What does he mean when he says, put on the helmet of salvation? Well, a lot of times here, we talk about three uh, aspects of salvation, right? You've heard this talk before. Sometimes we talk about salvation in the past tense. We would talk about conversion and regeneration and justification, that I have been saved. I have been saved from the penalty of sin in justification, right? That's good news, isn't it? Conversion is good news. To think that you can be made new 
be counted righteous before God, to be justified in his sight by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is good to be able to say, I have been saved. Amen? We also talk sometimes about the present tense of salvation, that I am being saved. We talk about sanctification. We talk about this process, uh, this trajectory of growing in holiness. We talk about becoming more and more like Jesus all the time. We talk about being delivered, being saved from the power of sin when we talk about sanctification. Sanctification is good news, right? It is good to be able to observe the difference God is making in my life. It is is good to be able to see victory over sin. It is good to be able to see a Godward trajectory in my life. It is really encouraging, right? That's part of what we talked about when we talked about the breastplate of righteousness, right? We talked about imputed righteousness of Christ in justification. We talked about practical righteousness being lived out in sanctification. I believe when Paul's talking here about the helmet of salvation, he's not primarily talking about those two parts of salvation, but the third part of salvation, which is glorification, which is that that we look forward to. It's heaven, it's glory, it's complete deliverance from the penalty and the power and even the very presence of sin. It is when we say, I will be saved. And this, this truth of future glory, this truth of hope in heaven gives us great confidence in the midst of the battle, right? When I realize that it will not always be like this, I fight with greater energy. When I realize that this battle is already decided and I am headed home, I will fight with death-defying confidence, right? Don't you think that? Don't soldiers do that? Don't modern-day soldiers do that? How many soldiers of ours are on the battlefield today without some kind of memento from home? How many of them go into battle without a picture of their loved one or a letter from someone who cares about them deeply? How many of them go into battle without some kind of memory and some kind of hope, some kind of expectation of going home? Every one of them does, right? And it gives them greater courage and greater confidence because they know this is not the way it's always going to be. At some point, I'm going home. And you need to know that as well, church. In the midst of this battle, it will not always be like this. It will not always be like this. One of these days we're going home. One of these days we're going home and there will be total peace, total deliverance from even the presence of sin. Did you remember? Do you remember what I read from Revelation chapter 21? No more tears, no more pain, no more sickness, no more death. The old things are gone. Jesus says, behold, I'm making all things new. I'm looking forward to that day, aren't you? So in the midst of this battle, I got to keep that helmet of salvation on, that hope that hope of future glory. I got to keep one eye on this battle, on this day, and one eye on that day, which is to come. And I fight differently in this day because of that day. Martin Luther said, there are only two days on my calendar. Only two days on my calendar, this day and that day. And the reality of that day helps me on this day, okay? So I believe that's what Paul is talking about when he speaks of the helmet of salvation. So when the battle is raging and it seems like too much for you, remember this. It is too much for you. You are right. You cannot fight it on your own. But when the battle is raging and it seems like too much for you, remember that you have an ally. You're not by yourself in the midst of this battle. And also remember that it will not always be like this. It will not always be like this. We will be delivered. We have been delivered. And we are being delivered. And oh, it's good news that we will be delivered, right? How many of you look forward to heaven? Yeah, how many of you let that make a difference in your battle today? That's what we're talking about. Put on the helmet of salvation, he says. Hear me clearly, though. This kind of hope, this kind of confidence, 
is only for those who know Jesus Christ. Only for those who trust in him as Savior and Lord of their lives. If you do not have him, if you do not know him, or as Joel always says, if he doesn't know you, you don't have that hope of future glory. In fact, the, the author of Hebrews says what you have is a terrifying expectation of judgment apart from Christ. A terrifying expectation of judgment for all of eternity and wrath for all of eternity and punishment for all of eternity. And make no mistake about it, when we talk about this hope and this confidence, it is only for those who are in Christ Jesus. The good news is all of us who are in Christ Jesus at one point were not in Christ Jesus, right? All of us who are saved at one point were lost. And God came to us and he convicted us of our sin by his Holy Spirit and by his word. He convicted us of our sin. He taught us about the reality of his justice and judgment against our sin. And then in the midst of that brokenness, in the midst of that despair, in the midst of that hopelessness, he turned our eyes to the cross and he said, this is for you. I sent my son while you were still a sinner. While you were still a sinner, I sent my son to die in your place. He turned our eyes to see the cross, Jesus bearing our sin, Jesus suffering our wrath, Jesus dying the death that we deserve. And then he put our eyes on the empty tomb, Jesus risen, victorious over sin and death and hell. And he says, I would change you by grace as a gift through faith, believing, trusting, resting our entire weight on him. Not by working, not by doing, but by depending on him. It's good news, right? It's good news. And because of that grace, because of that, we have hope. And because of hope, we fight. Helmet of salvation. So he says, take up the shield together. Put on the helmet of salvation. And then he says, take the sword of the spirit. Look at the end of verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Let's talk about the historic military usage of this sword. Like the shield, there are lots of swords available in Paul's day for the Roman soldier. There were big swords that were often used by... Um, by mounted troops, uh, two-handers like, like William Wallace. Remember William Wallace on Braveheart, the big two-handed sword? That's the kind of sword I want, just to be honest with you. That's the kind, if I'm going into battle, that's the kind of sword I want. But that's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is a very specific word, and it's a really short sword. Uh, at most, it would have been two feet long. Most of the time, it would have been no more than two feet long. It was a very short sword. We would probably call it a knife or a dagger today. And it was a sword that a Roman soldier uh, kept on his belt, the belt of truth. He would have kept the sword attached to his belt of truth so that he had ready access to it all the time. Does that make sense to you? So it's not a big sword that he would swing and just hope he would take someone out. It was a little sword that he would jab right where he wanted it to go. It was a precision instrument. Is this clear to you? This makes all the difference when we understand what Paul means when he says, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's not a big sweeping sword. It's a dagger that is thrust right into the heart. Got it? Good, good. So let's make the spiritual parallel. First, we must understand that he says it is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So make no mistake about it, the effectiveness of the word of God is because of the spirit of God, right? So when I stand to preach, when I stand to preach, I take the sword and I've got my hand on the sword, clearly, right? What you are hearing are my words coming out of my mouth, right? But we pray that what is happening is not my hand in control of the sword, but the spirit in control of the sword that is in my hand as if his hand is over my hand because it is his work that is going to be accomplished today and not my work by God's grace. 
Because if what happens when we proclaim the word of God in any kind of context is simply the work of the one who has his hand on the sword, it is weak. But if what is accomplished is the spirit's work when the sword is released from its sheath, then lives are changed, right? So it is the sword of the spirit. And then he says, which is the word of God. And this is where it gets really interesting. I know I've bored you today with talk about Greek words and this word and that word. This is highly significant. The word that Paul uses here for word, word of God, is not the normal word he uses for word. You tracking? Usually in the Bible, when the word of God is mentioned, the Greek word is logos. Um, and it's a big word. Logos is a big word. When we talk about the whole Bible, we're talking about the word of God. It is a high, it is a lofty word, and it's a, it's a big picture word. You got that? So when we read that normally, we're talking about the big picture. The word that's used here, though, is a very specific word. Rima is the word. And it means a particular statement. It means a, it's a smaller phrase. It's a smaller segment. It's not the big picture. It's the small picture. You get how that totally is consistent with the word for sword? He could have used a big word for sword and talked about logos, but he uses a little word for sword and talks about rima, which is a very particular statement of scripture. So let's think of it this way. This is, this is the logos. This is the word of God. Ephesians, if we were talking about Ephesians as a whole, we would talk about it as logos. But when we talk about particular verses, John 3, 16, we wouldn't refer to that as logos. We would refer to that as rima. When we talk about uh, uh, Romans 8, 1, when we talk about uh, tons of passages, we could, Romans 8, 28, we could talk about a thousand different little verses that are meant to be the sword of the Spirit so that we can, with precision, with accuracy, attack, attack the enemy. It's what we see Jesus doing in, in the wilderness. Jesus goes into the desert, is tempted by the devil. The devil says something, hey, why don't you, you can, you can turn these bread, these stones into bread. And he says, no, 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 it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. That's a rima. He replies not with a general understanding of the Bible. He replies with a specific, detailed, recalled usage of a particular passage. Does that make sense to you? So what we're talking about here, and what I want to encourage you, is that you need to have a big picture understanding of the scriptures. We need to have a grasp on the overall narrative of scripture. We need to have biblical literacy. But we also need to have biblical memorization. We need to have particular passages that in particular situations we can pull off of our belt and jab with, with precision, right? Maybe this is one of those. Maybe Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 is, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God. Maybe that is a specific rima, sword of the spirit. You get the picture here? So the word is not logos, it's not a big word, it's a small word. So we don't just need to have a general understanding of the scriptures, but a crystal clear recall of specific passages. We need to memorize scriptures. This is what Jesus did in the desert with Satan. So we've got shield of faith. We've got a helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. So how do we apply those? How do we draw all of this together? How do we use those things? Well, first, when we talk about the shield of faith, the first question is, do you or maybe are you resting your entire weight on Jesus. Remember, that's the definition we're kind of working with today. The question for us in application is, am I resting my entire weight on the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I depending entirely on his work? 
which means I know about his word, and I agree that he died on the cross for my sins and rose again. I agree that he is the son of God, but am I resting on that word, or am I trying to bear some of the load myself and do it myself? It's not what faith looks like. It's not what saving faith looks like, at least. Saving faith looks like total trust and dependence on him and the work that he has done. So the first question is, do you even have a shield of faith? Are you resting your whole weight on the Lord Jesus? Second question would be, do you, do you need more connectedness with other people who have a shield of faith? And, and maybe this is the wrong audience to talk to about this, but maybe it's exactly the right audience to talk to about this. You're here today, right? Some of you are here today. Some of you are somewhere else today. I get that. You're here today. And so it would be easy to say, oh, yeah, I've got my, I've got my shield linked with other shields, and I'm making an advance on the, on the enemy, and I'm moving forward into their territory. But really, are, is your shield really linked with someone else? Or do you come here to this place and go through this service, work down the order, and then you go out to your own life with your own shield, and you never link it with anyone else's? That is dangerous. That is absolutely dangerous for you to live your life without this connectedness. So the question is, do you need more connectedness? And the answer is yes. No matter how much connectedness you already have, no matter how many shields you're linked together with, you need more of it. We all need more of it, right? Would you rather have, <laughs> would you rather have 10 soldiers or 50 soldiers? This, this, I, I chuckle because it reminds me of those AT&T commercials with the guy and the little kid. Yeah, you want, you want 50 soldiers. Would you rather have 50 or 100? Would you rather have 100 or 1,000? Would you rather have 1,000 or 3,000? Yeah, the more you can link your shield with other people, the better. And we act like the opposite is true. Link up. Get involved. Some of you, some of you need to take another step in linking your shield here at First Baptist Church. Some of you have been coming. You're here regularly, but your life is not connected with anyone else. Get connected. Get in a small group. Have somebody over for dinner. Take them out for coffee. Get connected with somebody. Some of you need to officially join the church, officially link your shield together with ours. There are steps that every one of us can take in this room, if we have the shield of faith, to link it together with other shields, with other shields, with fellow soldiers, so that we can protect and extinguish the flaming arrows of the enemy. Shield of faith. We also have helmet of salvation. And the question there is like the first question, do you even have a helmet at all? If we're talking about the helmet being the hope of heaven, do you have that at all? Do you have any legitimate reason, legitimate footing to say, yeah, I'm going to heaven. I think everyone in Harrisburg thinks they're going to heaven. I don't think you knock on many doors and someone say, no, I'm going to hell. I think, I think most people around here think they're going to heaven. The question is not, do you think you're going to heaven? The question is, do you have any evidence of that? Is there any reason for you to think that? The question is, are you? Do you have the hope of heaven? You can only have it through Jesus Christ. This church cannot give you the hope of heaven. Your grandma cannot give you the hope of heaven. Only Jesus Christ the hope of heaven do you have a helmet of all and if you do are you looking forward to the day when the struggle will be all over there's a lot of a lot of new things going on 
about heaven in, in our culture today. All kinds of books being written about heaven being real, about someone's experience, someone's experience. I, I died on the operating table, and this is what I saw, and because I saw it, you should believe that heaven is real. I want you to know that heaven is real, not because somebody had an experience and wrote a book about it, not because someone had an experience and made a movie about it. I want you to know that heaven is real because God's word says it's real, period. It's the end of the story. You can write all the other books you want, but it is real because God's word said it's real. And that's all you need, right? If the word of God says it, it is trustworthy, it is true, you can take it to the bank. And God's word speaks about heaven and the hope of heaven for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it is real, and you should be really encouraged about it if you are in Christ. You should know that there is coming a day of gates of pearl and streets of gold and the very presence of God. There is coming a day when you will no longer see dimly as through a darkened glass, but face to face. And you will know fully, even as you are fully known, right? There is coming a day with no more tears and no more sickness and no more death and no more pain because there is no more sin. You should know that those things are true. And that should make you fight with all the confidence in the world all the confidence in the universe because you are his, right? So heaven is real because God's word says it's real, not because some guy wrote a book about it. Speaking of God's word and the sword of the spirit, the question is, do you trust the word of God? When he says it, do you believe it? Do you see God's word as authoritative, supremely authoritative? There is no authority like God's word. Do you see it that way? Do you see his word as completely accurate without any mixture of error? Do you see God's word as the standard by which all things will be judged? Do you trust God's word? The second question is, do you know God's word? Listen, if Jesus fought Satan with particular statements of scripture because he knew those statements of scripture, how much more do we need to know particular statements of scripture to fight against Satan? Does that make sense to you? If that's the way Jesus engaged, Jesus could have engaged him a bunch of other ways, right? Just think of all the other ways Jesus could have engaged Satan on that day. He could have, uh, like, headlocked him. He, he could have fought him any way imaginable. He could have just put him down with a word, poof, right? He could have fought him in a thousand different ways. But how did he fight him? With the word of God, with particular statements of God's word. And if that's the way Jesus fought him, how much more must we fight him that way? And if we're going to fight him that way, we must know the word of God. That's why I commend to you Bible Drill. <laughs> Bible Drill is a huge resource for our children, especially when they become adults. Because the word of God is planted deep in them, and they might not understand it at this point. They might not know all that it means, but it's there. And by God's grace, they will grow in their understanding, but it is there. And they will be able to use it. And so we commend Bible drill for our children. But we need to, as adults, be knowing the scriptures, be learning the scriptures, be memorizing the scriptures so that the sword is on our belt so that we're ready to use it when we need it, right? So there is a great app that I found uh, that was developed by Bethlehem Baptist Church where John Piper is the pastor. They have this program of scripture memory that their church has been doing for seven years now. It's called Fighter Verses. And each week there's a verse, each week there's a verse for you to memorize, and it's a very practical verse that, that is explained, hey, this will be helpful when this happens, this will be helpful in this situation. And there's an app for it now, aren't you, there's an app for everything, right? 
There's an app for scripture memory. And I will post this afternoon on Twitter and Facebook at First Baptist Church the link to the uh, uh, Fighter Verse app. But I want to encourage you to do that. You cannot, you cannot wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, if you do not know the Word of God. And we'll talk in Sunday school next week in adult small group Bible study. We'll talk about what it looks like to know the word of God. That it's not just memory that's important. It's just reading. Reading is important. And studying is important. And meditating is important. And memorization is important. And I think particularly in this context, memorization is important. Listen to these two quotes about sort of the spirit and scripture memory. One scholar says, no believer has an excuse for not knowing and understanding God's word. And I would add, especially in the United States of America, there are places where they don't have access to the word of God. And we need to do what we can do to get them the word of God, right? With translation, with, with uh, Bible saturation, with helium balloons that will fly over borders that we can't fly over. We need to do what we can to get them the scriptures. But here, especially, no believer has an excuse for not knowing and understanding God's word. Every believer has God's own Holy Spirit within him as his own divine teacher of God's divine word. That's dynamite, isn't it? You, you don't necessarily need the preacher. Preachers are good, and Sunday school teachers are good, and disciples are good, disciplers are good. But you've got the Holy Spirit, so take it up and read it when you're by yourself. You've got the Holy Spirit as your divine teacher of God's divine word. Our only task is to submit to his instruction by studying the word with sincerity and commitment. Listen to this last line, and this is a huge gut check. It says, we cannot plead ignorance or inability only disinterest and neglect. We cannot plead ignorance or inability, only disinterest and neglect. If you don't know the word of God, if you're a believer and you don't know the word of God, it's on you. It is absolutely on you. You've got access to it in all kinds of places. You've got the Holy Spirit to teach you. It's on you. So take up and read. Take up and study. Take up and meditate and memorize. Listen to this next one. It says, face the truth. This is dynamite. Different guy. Face the truth. We are at war. And our razor-sharp weapon is God's word. And we are fools to keep it in the scabbard simply because our culture says it cannot cut. Does our culture say it cannot cut? Absolutely. The culture says, oh, trust, trust the word of God, you backwards hillbilly. We are fools to keep it in the scabbard simply because our culture says it cannot cut. That's what the enemy wants us to believe. That, is ir that it is irrelevant, archaic, and not understandable. So keep it in the sheath where it is, of course, harmless. So listen, if you've got the word of God, the sword of the spirit, and it's in its sheath, and you never take it out because the culture says it's without power, it's harmless. The enemy has won. But you need to regularly take that thing out of the sheath and stab somebody with it. Right? I mean, not, not literally. You get the picture, right? What good does it do to have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and keep it in the sheath hanging from your belt, or worse yet, up on your mantle so everyone can see it? The thing was meant to cut. It was meant to cut you. It was meant to cut others. The sword, did you, did you see that line that we sang? The sword that makes the wounded whole. It is good when God's Word cuts us, right? I'm thankful that His sword is sharp and cuts to, to the quick. It's a good thing. So, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit. First question is, do you have any of it through a relationship with Jesus Christ? Second is, are you using it? Are you using the things he's given to us? Or do you have your armor stacked up in the corner so that everyone can see it? 
put it on and fight. Let's stand together and pray. God, help us. Help us to respond rightly to this. Help us to know if we have faith. Help us to know if we have hope. Help us to know if we really trust your word. Satan has deceived so many in the church who claim to have faith, saving faith, but only have agreement. So many who claim to have hope of heaven, but do not have a relationship with your son. Satan has deceived so many. So God, teach us the truth about where we stand today. Not so that we can be destroyed, but so that we can be redeemed. God, if we are lost, we want to know we are lost. If we are hopeless, we want to know that we are hopeless so that in that brokenness, you can teach us about your provision and your grace and your salvation so that our lives can be forever changed. So God, teach us today if we belong to you or not. And if we don't, God, draw us, change us, raise us from the dead by your grace for your glory. And God, for those who are your people, help us link together and push forward with others who have a shield of faith. Help us to wear always the helmet of salvation, the hope of future glory with you. And help us to love and know and memorize and use your word in the midst of this battle. Thank you for giving us your word. Forgive us when we leave it in the scabbard. Forgive us when we put it on the shelf. Give us a hunger and a thirst for your word. Teach us that it is bread for life, for sustenance. Grow us by your grace. In Christ's name we pray.